0: This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org.
1: Thanks for listening. morning again. We're going to be reading Acts 19, 1 through 10. This is Paul in Ephesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered into the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking of evil, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks.
0: Good morning, Redemption. How are you? You're not sure, are you? That's okay. Uh, You guys are doing great. So I'm just going to tell you, I like to be assertive like that. Thanks for being here this morning. Excited to jump into uh, God's Word and see what he has to say from a very interesting passage. Um, do you all remember when you got your license? Some of you haven't gotten it yet. It'll come. It's okay. Your parents are praying. It happens soon. Except for you. They want it to wait. Uh, <clears throat> I. It took me three tries to get my license. True story. It was terrible. Uh, so the first time I went, I. Um, you guys, uh, this is... What an experience you think they have like a more streamlined effect well uh i've indiana bmv you guys got it great here i just want to say that there is like a system down it's smooth in new york it's a nightmare uh so i went and i get in uh, the guy gets in the car because they drive around with you um that is a brave job for that person to jump in any old car so he jumps in the car with me he's like let me see your paperwork so i hand him the paperwork and he looks over and he's like uh you don't have the right paperwork I'm like, what do you mean I don't have the right paperwork? There's my, you know, permit. I'm good to go. He's like, you don't have the right paperwork. I was like, what does this mean? He says, you're not taking your test. So can I come back tomorrow? He's like, no, you have to reschedule. So that was my first test. Failed. I didn't even have the right paperwork. So I come back a week later, and I'm like, all right, ready to go. And this is a big deal because like your parents have to like they don't they don't schedule these appointments at like normal times when people are actually available. It's during the middle of the day, so I'm taking off school. My mom has to drive me there. They make it such a That's amazing that any of us can drive. Uh, So I come a week later, and I get in the car, or he gets in the car, and we finally make our way. I have all the right paperwork, and we drive around, and I was doing great. I was crushing it, you know, the turn your blinker on 100 feet before you get to the stop sign. I do all the rules. Made sure the car jerked completely when you hit a stop, you know, because if your car doesn't jerk, then you're not fully stopped. Um, Until I got to the parallel park, and um, I didn't do good. It just didn't happen. I, uh, I hit the curb, and I was like, maybe he's going to ignore that. They don't ignore that. So I failed, and uh, so now I have to come back a third time. And so a schedule, I don't know if it's like a week later, two weeks later, I finally make it back to the third time. He gets in the car. I don't know if it's the same guy. I hope it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and we, I'm not kidding. We drive around. This is the world's longest driver's test. We drive around for 20 minutes. You know how you, like, you drive around 20 minutes so you don't have to parallel park? We drove around 20 minutes so I could parallel park. Like We had to make this happen. We, true story, this is in downtown Cortland, New York. We could not find a car to parallel park against. There was nothing. Like So finally, we see this car, and it's just one car by himself on a street, and he's like, you're parallel parking against that car. I'm like, that's the only car on the street. He's like, you're parallel parking. And uh, so I crushed it. Um, I didn't hit the other car, and I made it. It was great. And it was so important that I got it, everything right. You've, you've been in, you remember being the driver's test. They get their little clipboard. They have this huge checklist. And you have to get everything perfect. They are on it. And it is critical that you get it right. Because if you don't get it right, you ain't driving. And trust me, your parents want you driving. Uh, they want you to, to go take yourself to your practice. They want you to take yourself to see the movies. They don't want to drive you anymore. So you have to get it right. It is critical. But there are some things in life that are significantly more critical to getting right. In fact, there are some things in life that are so critical that if you get it wrong, it's a matter of life and death. Things that are so critical that if, if you get it wrong, it's a matter of eternal life and death. it is important we understand what it is to get right. And getting the message of Jesus and what he's about is critical to get right. And I don't just mean intellectually. I don't want you just to have the, the right theology of Jesus. We're a, we're a church that loves theology, that loves the word. And it's, it's good and it's important to have all your uh, I's dotted and your T's crossed under theology. But I'm talking about your actual belief. What are you really putting your faith and your hope, your meaning life, all your trust in? In our text today, we're going to find how important it is to get it right. In today's text, we're catching up with the Apostle Paul. We took a little detour last week learned about this guy, Apollos. Ethan did an awesome job walking us through Apollos' experience. But now we're back with Paul, and Paul has returned to Ephesus. He was in Ephesus briefly back in uh, Acts 18. If you remember in verse 21, he told us, hey, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and visit you. He left Priscilla and Aquila, and he went off and did some gallivanting around Asia, came back just like he promised. He comes back to the city of Ephesus. Now, you may know the city of Ephesus if you know anything about um, ancient world history. If you've ever heard of the seven wonders of the world, Ephesus is a city that um, was the host of one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis or Diana. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, this huge temple. And Ephesus was a cultural hub in what we know as Asia Minor. And there was. Thousands of people here. There was thousands of idols. It was a a cultural hub, a religious hub. It was a main port city, so lots of trade, lots of wealth. And Paul comes to this city, which is very strategic if you think about it, because imagine, like, if the gospel blows up in New York City, in Manhattan. Imagine if the gospel blows up in Los Angeles. What would happen to the gospel? I mean, it was spread across the country and the world so fast and that's what Paul is doing here. And not only does Ephesus have this, this big cultural uh, influence, there also are a lot of Jews there, which is really convenient for him because what does he like to do? He likes to go to synagogues. He likes to go to preach the message and help people, tell, uh, help people learn about Jesus. He likes to go meet with his people there. And there's a decent-sized Jewish population there. So it's very strategic of Paul to be in Ephesus. We were in Ephesus last week with Apollos, and we found that Apollos didn't quite understand some things about Jesus, so Priscilla and Aquila had to kind of uh, fix his theology a little bit, get him to understand. He got all excited, so he goes on his own little missionary journey. But I come to find out, Apollos wasn't the only person in Ephesus who wasn't quite getting the message of Jesus. They weren't getting it right, and we're actually gonna see in our text there are three kinds of people represented here and how they related to the message of Jesus. And the, and the call for us this morning is to stop and consider, of these three kinds of people, where, where are you? Who do you most identify with? And, and when you identify with one of these kinds of people, how are you going to respond? This morning, I just have a big question for you, and the question is, what are you doing with the message of Jesus? What are you doing with the message of Jesus? And we're going to look at three realities about responding to the message of Jesus. Three realities about responding to the message of Jesus. The first reality we're going to look at this morning is this, is you can be close, but close is not close enough. Close is not close enough. If you're still in Acts 19, why don't you look down and uh, look at me with verse 1. We're going to read through this again. Luke writes, and it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All right, so how many of you read that text, or even heard Craig read a second ago, and you're like, uh, what? You can you can admit it. This is like, this is a unique, interesting, weird text. In fact, if you believe that, I want you to know you're in good company. Why? Because one, I believe that. And I thought I was weird until I read a couple commentaries, and all the, all these commentaries are like, hey, this is a notoriously difficult passage. So if you're like, man, this is hard, that's okay. You're in good hands uh, and good company, too. Hopefully, you're in good hands if I explain this well, but you're in good company. So let's we're going to slow down a little bit. You guys want to learn a little bit this morning? Let's, let's walk through this text because I think there's something really interesting here. So Paul comes in, and he finds these disciples, and these disciples are most likely disciples of John the Baptist. These aren't christian disciples and you find this because they tell you hey we believe john the baptist these are most likely followers of the teaching of john the baptist so he asks them this question he says did you receive the holy spirit that's a weird question kind of a i mean have, have anybody ever been asked that question i have never been asked if i've received the holy spirit you should try that at your next party it'll go great why is he asking this well because he's a genius that's why he's after something he knows that the Holy Spirit is a sign of having accepted Christ. Jesus actually promised that. He said, I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to send what? The Holy Spirit. It was promised. There was The Holy Spirit's going to come for all who believe. So Paul is inquiring, okay, let me see where these people are. Let me understand what they really believe theologically, where they are spiritually. And he hit the jackpot because look at what they said. We haven't heard there's a Holy Spirit. Say what? This shows his genius because if he needs to know where these guys were spiritually, man, he's three quarters of the way there. They don't even know there's a Holy Spirit. So then he asks one follow-up question. He's going gonna to finish it off. He says, into what were you baptized then? Again, that's an interesting question, and we aren't asking people very often what they're baptized in, but you have to remember what baptism meant back then. It should mean the same thing in our culture today, but just history kind of erases kind of meaning sometimes. But the idea of baptism back in this time was it was an identity marker. When you were baptized into something, you were proclaiming to everybody, this is where I stand. This is my allegiance. This is where my faith is. This is what my trust is in. It's, it's even more than having a bumper sticker on your car or wearing a WWJD bracelet. It was massive signal to everybody, this is where my faith is. So he's saying, okay, where essentially, where is your faith? What have you baptized into? And they said, well, John the Baptist teaching. And for Paul, that's just like his pastoral GPS just acquired all its satellites. And he knows right where they are. And they were missing something. And what were they missing? They're missing Jesus. And he says that. He says, You believed John, who taught about a baptism of repentance. That's good. He wasn't condemning them for that. But John was pointing to someone who was coming. And what I'm telling you is, he's come. He's. He's arrived. Your Messiah that you've been looking for has come, and his name is Jesus. And what did they do? They they believed. See, they understood repentance and they, they turned from their sin, but they they didn't know that the Messiah had come. And, and and Paul clarified for that. The fullness of time had come. They didn't need to look forward anymore. Belief in Jesus now and what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection is, is the whole truth. And and then they are so close, but they weren't close enough. So we find that they believe, and they were baptized, and then you get to the next verse, and this is where a lot of us get a little like, what? Look at it again with me. Verse 6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, what is going on here? Does this sound a little bit like Acts too? Should so let me let me to get this. We kind of need to pull up to the broader context of the Book of Acts and really the whole timeline of Scripture to understand what's going on here, because we tend to think uh, Pentecost is this one and done activity. But the book of Acts is really a transitionary book from the Old Testament, which means Old Covenant, in case you're wondering, Testament, Covenant, same thing, to New Testament, New Covenant. There's a transition going on. And so there's a, and these are, this is a transition for the Jews. The Jews believed in the Old Covenant, in, in the coming Messiah, and they're transitioning into this New Covenant. And that's huge for them. Think about that. You've waited your whole life for a Messiah, and now the promised Messiah has come, and everything has changed. That's a lot to deal with. And so, what does God do? To what does He give them as a confirmation to help them know and be assured that this change really is from Him? He gives them sign gifts, He gives them tongues and prophecies to help affirm and confirm this transition is happening. But it doesn't just happen all at once. And we tend to think, like I said, Pentecost is one and done, but we see this happening in Acts 2. In Acts 2, a bunch of Jews have received the message, and God is confirming that message through tongues and prophecy. But next time you, you see a bunch of Jews getting together, needing to understand this message, is Acts 10 in Cornelius. And guess what happens when Cornelius' household is saved? There's tongues and prophecy. Then you get to Acts 19. There's some Jews, and they make it very clear that these Jews were believing Old Testament prophecies, right? Because they said he was following John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And they're believing that. And then they believe in Jesus, and the confirmation of that message for these Jewish believers is what? Tongues and prophecy. So there's this transition going on throughout the book of Acts and it's important to understand Acts is a transitionary book and that's why you see the tongues. But the important thing to grasp here in all this is they were close. They were very close. They were so close that they were willing to repent and look forward to this Messiah but they were not close enough because they missed Jesus. Now what does it have to do with us? I don't think anybody here has been baptized into repentance of John the Baptist. I don't know of anybody who's been here like that. We, that's not us. What does this have to do with us who are now 2,000, almost 2,000 years into the new covenant? I believe the church, even a church like ours who preaches the Bible, who sings the Bible, we talk about the Bible in our small groups, we're, we're reading our Bibles day in and day out. I think even us are at risk of being close, but not close enough. We're at risk of missing Jesus and forgetting that it's about him. We are at risk of having a Christless Christianity. As we talk about Jesus, we use his name. We speak of all the great things we like about him his miracles, his love for sinners, his piety. We love how he stands on truth and calls out hypocritical Pharisees. We love looking at his moral example, but do we love him? as the person, is who he is, all of him, I see for us two risks of missing Jesus Christ, two particular risks of believing what I'm going to call a false Christ. The first is this, the, the false Christ of legalism, the false Christ of legalism. See, legalism says to be right with God, you have to earn God's favor. You have to obey all these rules and and check all the boxes. And if we're just just right, then maybe God's going to like us. And he's sitting up there with his arms crossed just waiting for you to get it right. And he's going to hold back his love until you do. He's a very conditional God. He's not gracious or generous. But he's stingy. And he's holding back unless you meet his exact demands. We see his law and his rules as these negative commands that you have to somehow overcome to try to earn his favor. Legalism says, I have to earn God's love and favor. I like how Sinclair Ferguson writes in his book, The Whole Crisis, how he explains legalism. God becomes a magnified policeman who gives his law only because he wants to deprive us and in particular destroy our joy. The lie that we now believe is that to glorify God is not indeed cannot be to enjoy him forever but to lose all joy see the legalist doubts the heart of God is gracious and kind and loving you also have the false Christ of antinomianism that's a really big word another one you can drop at parties make a lot of friends that way uh, you won't. But antinomianism simply means no law. And you have two kind of types of antinomianism. You have antinomianism among unbelievers who just reject God's law because see God's laws is too demanding and um, He's mean and they can never achieve it. So, and there are some Christians who believe this. So they just reject God's law. They're ticked off and they turn away from God because He just seems like a big jerk. Then you have. Uh, a flavor of antinomianism even among Christians who say, well, Christ came and, and, he, and he paid for the law. And, uh, and grace covers everything, so I don't need to care about the law anymore. The law is, doesn't matter. But the heart of both of those views the law of God as negative, as bad, because, again, it believes the heart of God is bad. Because God's law reflects his heart. So if you think God's law is bad, you think God's heart is bad. God's heart is a God of, is is a heart of love. See, antinomian says, antinomianism says, I can never earn God's love and favor, so I'll reject His law. Or for a Christian, I'll just overlook it. I'll ignore it. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says antinomianism and legalism are not so much antithetical to each other as they are both antithetical to grace. See, This this is why Scripture never prescribes one as the antidote for the other, rather grace, God's grace in Christ and our union with Christ is the antidote to both. So what's the antidote? The antidote is what I'm calling the whole Christ of Christianity, which I steal shamelessly from Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. What he means by the whole Christ of Christianity is all of him, both the grace and the truth, and who he is as a person. See, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it, to get rid of it. And he died for your breaking of that law. And he died to free you from the penalty of the law. And not not because God's up there with his arms crossed and he's not going to love you until the law is taken care of. See, what that does is that assumes... That God Again, God is conditional. But do you know why Christ came? Christ came for you because he loved you. He died on the cross and fulfilled the law for you because he loved you. God wasn't up there holding back until Christ came and died on the cross for you. And then he's like, all right, now I can love you. It was in his love that he sent Christ for you. And if you get that order wrong... You're going to view your God as this conditional God who's just mean and put all these rules in the way for you. Because listen, God's law isn't what was keeping you from him. Your sin was. And his rules weren't in the way for you reaching him. Your sin was in the way. And he came and took that sin for you. and Nailed it to a cross. And you can be so close, but if you don't get that, you are not close enough. That it's Jesus Christ and what he has done. So the antidote is to believe in Jesus Christ, all of who he is. Who he is as a son of God and son of man. All he accomplished for you in his death and resurrection. All he taught and proclaimed. I want you to hitch your wagon to Jesus Christ. Put your full trust in him, the whole Christ. So, a question for you this morning, a couple of them, is this. Do you tend to lean more toward legalism? Maybe that's your heart's bent towards legalism, thinking you can earn God's favor. Maybe God will love me if I just work hard enough. I'm telling you, he already does. Do you tend to lean more toward antinomianism? I don't need to obey. I don't want to do that. What about God's heart do you tend to distrust then? And how has Christ proven God's seriousness towards sin and his incredible love? The first reality about responding to the message of Christ is you can be close, but not close enough. The second is this. You can be far, but far can be too far gone. Far can be too far gone. We get this from the next section in our text. So look down, Acts 19, verse 8, and follow along with me. Again, Luke writes, And he entered the synagogue, this is Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, Reasoning daily in the tall hall of Tyrannus. So Paul does here, after he talks with the disciples, he does what we see him typically do in a lot of cities. He moves into the synagogue. This is not an unusual pattern for Paul because there he can find some people who, again, are most of the way there. They understand a lot of the Bible. They understand the Old Testament. And he goes in and he starts teaching and reasoning and preaching, and it says, speaking boldly about the kingdom of God. Now, what's interesting about this is you don't see the word, uh, the phrase kingdom of God actually show up a whole lot in the book of Acts, only a handful of times. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time, but it's not very common in Acts. But for the Jews, this idea of a kingdom of God is huge. Because again, remember, they're looking forward to a Messiah. And the Messiah wasn't just somebody who was going to save them, for, for the Jews, the Messiah was the king who was going to come save them. And so when he's preaching about the kingdom of God, he's saying, Your Messiah has come. He's established his kingdom. And he's not just king of, of Israel, he's king of the whole world. And to be part of this kingdom, you need to repent and you need to put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. So he's preaching the gospel. But not everyone's convinced. Do you see that in verse 9? Look down again. Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. It's a very intentional and descriptive term Luke used. Stubborn. See, stubbornness is a heart attitude that refuses to accept what is clearly true. Let me say that again. Stubbornness is a hard attitude that refuses to accept what is clearly true. It's, it's a heart of rebellion. It's, it's a choice. They, they're choosing to not believe. And Luke clarifies it when he says, and continued in unbelief. So I think we generally uh, uh, think that unbelief is kind of our natural state, that we choose to believe, but by default, we're we're unbelievers. It's like like we're at, we start at neutral, at zero. So if somebody doesn't believe, their news And we say that like, oh, I got I to choose to believe that. But you know that the Bible sees belief and unbelief. Both of those are choices. That's what Luke says. But also check this out. Turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one. We're going to jump down to verse 21. So Paul here is talking about the state of unbelievers, people who are not Christians. And he says this about unbelievers. For although they knew God, well, that's interesting. These unbelievers knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you notice the verbs in there? They knew God did not honor him, did not give thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. These are all active choices. They chose to not believe. And the same thing happened in Ephesus, in this synagogue. Men and women heard the truth and they chose to not believe. And then they proceeded to reject. And reject so much that not only did they just say, oh, I'm not going to believe, they became antagonistic. Did you see that? In verse 9, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So they turned against the truth and were actively attacking the truth. I read that and I couldn't help but think of uh, Bart Ehrman. How many of you ever heard of Bart Ehrman before? Uh Bar Ehrman is a prolific author in um, of works on the Bible. He is a um, outspoken agnostic, just not sure if there even is a God. Uh, writes books against Christianity talking about how the Bible is not reliable, um, historic Christianity, how, you know, if you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas, he'll write a lot about the Gospel of Thomas and how, like, Christianity covered up these alternatives, all sorts of stuff like that. But this guy knows his Bible better than probably anybody in this room. Here's what's interesting about Bar Ehrman. Bar Ehrman will tell you that he became an evangelical Christian when he was in high school, was involved in a youth group, Grew to love the Bible, wanted to learn about the Bible, wanted to preach the Bible. So he went to Moody Bible Institute. After a couple years at Moody Bible Institute, he went to Wheaton College. Wheaton College is a flagship evangelical university in America. Graduated from Wheaton College, went to Princeton Seminary because he wanted to learn the Bible more, wanted to teach. And while he's at Princeton Seminary, he's learning a language learning the original language, reading some viewpoints from other people, and starting to wonder, wait, man, is that, there's some discrepancies. I feel like there's some discrepancies between the gospel accounts. Are these, in his mind, perceived discrepancies? We can talk about those later if you have any questions. There aren't. But he saw them there. And he starts questioning. He starts reading liberal theologians who are questioning scripture, and all of a sudden, his faith. He starts doubting his faith and he walks down this path. And I don't know when, but there was a point in time for Bar Ehrman where he made a choice and he said, I'm going to believe this set of beliefs and not believe the truth instead of believing what is true. He made a legitimate, intentional choice. And now he writes books against Christianity. because the reality is you can move far away from the truth and you can get to a point where you're too far gone. And that's what happened to Bart. And there are serious consequences to this because there will come a point if you move too far where there is no return. And I don't know when that is. Nobody does. But it will happen the book of Hebrews is littered with warning passages for people about being careful not to go too far. In fact, Hebrews 10 says this. You can look on the screen. Hebrews 10, verse 26. The author of Hebrews writes this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that idea is you're rejecting what's true, willfully ignoring what God has said. Willfully living in unbelief For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, there are serious consequences of hearing the truth and rejecting it. This is what breaks my heart about this trend of deconstruction going on, which is really just apostasy. That's the new catchphrase. This rejection, the people who've grown up hearing the truth of Jesus and then eventually they reject it because here's the reality. There is consequences and more severe consequences for people who've heard the the truth and rejected it than those who never heard. The more you know, the more serious the consequences there will be. I didn't say that. That's what Hebrews just said. And it breaks my heart. And I get it. I sympathize with some of the heartache of people who are walking through this. When I look at church history, when I look at just what's happened in certain churches and evangelicalism over the past couple of decades, there are things that break my heart. There's been a lot of wicked, evil things done in the church and in the name of Christ. There is, and we have to admit that. But my faith isn't in the church. My faith isn't in those men who failed. My faith is in Jesus Christ, and only Jesus offers the solution to all that problem. Only Christianity offers the solution to the mess that we all see in the church. But my heart breaks because I get it. If you're one of those people this morning, and you're like, man, I think I, I may be on that path of deconstruction. I, I may be doubting some things. I want you to know that this is a safe place. You are welcome here. But I want you to keep those doubts inside. Talk to one of the pastors, talk to an elder, talk to a small group leader. We want to walk with you through these things. Because if you're doubting, do you know that you're in good company? Maybe you've never seen this before. I've, true story, I read this this week, I was like, I can't believe I forgot about this. Uh, Matthew 28. Look at the screen. Matthew 28. This is right before the Great Commission is given out. Okay, So Jesus has been around for 40 days. Okay, he's, He's risen from the dead. And these are his disciples who've been with him. And he says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mount to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. How many of you have ever seen this? But some doubted. These are his disciples. They've seen him over and over again after he rose from the dead. And they're still doubting. And guess what? These are the men that went on to change the world. We are here right now because of these 11 men, some who doubted. Charles Spurgeon doubted. Martin Luther doubted. John Calvin doubted. C.S. Lewis doubted. Pastor Drew is doubted. We do. You're in good company, but you go to the source. You take your doubts to Jesus and you keep on. You put your faith in him. The solution to being far is to choosing to put your faith in Jesus and it's a choice. Right now, today, today, you can make the choice to believe or make the choice to not believe but i pray you will make the choice to believe so a couple questions for you this morning do you do you have doubts about the christian faith and what have you done with those doubts in your doubting what are you using to evaluate your beliefs and why are you using that have you ever considered taking your doubts to jesus The second reality about responding to the message of Jesus is that far can be too far gone. Far can be too far gone. The last is this, real quick. This one should be obvious at this point, but just right is trusting fully in Jesus. Just right is trusting fully in Jesus. We see this in our text in verse 9. Again, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And then look what happened. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is where I want all of us to end up. Because not everyone turned away. And those who chose to listen to Paul, what did they do? They kept on. They followed him. They kept learning. And for years and years, they kept learning. And their learning changed their lives so much that look at the impact that it made. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is massive. They chose to believe. And they kept on and leaned in. Because what happens when you get it right. When you cling to Jesus, it changes everything. In fact, I would put it this way. It's not you getting it right. It's what's right getting a hold of you. In fact, I love how Rich Mullins says it in his song, uh, The Creed, which is just, he put music to the Creed, uh, the Apostles Creed, and gave it a chorus. But the chorus is awesome. I love this chorus. He says, and I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. And that's what happens when you grab a hold of Jesus, as he starts making you. Why? Because he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes, and it starts to work in you. It starts to change your life, and it's going to do that because he promised it would. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says this, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's going to keep working you and changing you and growing you until, you, until Christ returns. And, and it's going to happen because in Ephesians 1, it tells us the Holy Spirit is the seal. Because he's in you, you are guaranteed to be made new. How many of you want to be made new this morning? Good gracious, this morning I woke up, I looked in the mirror, I was like, man, Wouldn't it be great to not be this guy anymore? One day, I'm going to be a Drew fully made into the image of Christ because of the Holy Spirit. So what do you do now? I don't want you to go home, and I don't want you to try harder this week. I don't want you to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, figure out how to get this Christian faith thing down. What I want you to do is I want you to turn to Jesus. I want you to look to him. Put all your hope in him. Get to know him more. Like, where do I start? Right here. Just book of Matthew. Open it up. Start reading. Get to know Jesus Christ because that is where salvation is found. It's not in working harder. It's not in trying harder. It's putting your faith and hope in Jesus Christ because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to be so close, but not close enough. I don't want you to walk away. I want you to get it just right. And just right is all your hope, all your faith, all your trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Adam's going to come and he's going to lead us here in a second. The question I asked at the top was this. What are you doing with the message of Jesus? And the answer is simple. You put all your hope in Him, all your trust in Him. And I get it's not easy. There are many days where it's really, really hard. But it's His work. He's the one that saves you, not you. When we sing this song, this song that we're going to sing is a prayer. You're actually praying to God, asking God to work. And I don't, I, don't want you, I don't want you to sing a lie. So my prayer for you this morning is that as we sing this song, this really would be your prayer, that you could sing these words honestly, from the heart, really pleading with God to give you the faith to believe. Because even the faith you have to believe is not from you. It is a gift from God. And he will answer to give you the faith to believe that Christ is it. Don't be don't be walking out of here and missing Jesus. God give us more of Jesus. Open our eyes more to see clearly who he is, how beautiful he is, how great he is. God kill the legalism in our hearts, kill the rejection of the law in our hearts help us to see that you are a good and gracious and loving God who loved us so much you gave us Jesus and we can have him but we need all the help we can get we pray that you would move this morning in us in Christ's name we pray